listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of record messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. While Lewis emerged as perhaps America's best-known labor leader, Lewis leading the cause of industrial unionism had inspired workers in many ways. He had not only offered a better means to confront capitalism, but had attacked big labor. This won over support of the communists, which were perhaps the best organizers in the country. The communist-led unions departed the AFL to join the CIO. Lewis's close working relationship with Roosevelt made him appear to be a father of the New Deal, saving capitalism and democracy, as well as adjusting the nation's economy so as to benefit workers. Lewis was so popular that radio broadcasts by him had tens of millions of listeners. Within months, the CIO's 3.7 million members surpassed the AFL's 3.4 million. Unfortunately, the split between the AFL and CIO prevented it from being a truly national labor contingent with limitless authority. The CIO was not much different other than the few issues, industrial organizing and inclusion of blacks, women, and communists, and immigrants. The NIRA Section 7A was working, but the government needed to do more as employers were thwarting the law. For example, in the strike by textile workers in 1934, membership in the United Textile Workers had exploded between September 1933 and August 1934. Membership increased from 40,000 to 270,000. The textile owners ignored the NIRA strictures by code chiseling, manipulating the regulations so as to force greater production from workers or setting up production standards so high that they were then free to terminate older workers and women who could not meet the quotas in response to such sleight of hand and to the Southern Mills' disregard to minimum wage and collective bargaining reforms, the UTW called for a strike for September 3, 1934, demanding union recognition, humane production levels, and a 30-hour work week. It started with a walkout at Spindle, North Carolina. Using flying squadrons, strikers in pickup trucks driving over back roads to outlying mill sites to urge on further strikes. 376,000 textile workers abandoned their machines at the time the largest strike in U.S. history. At Honey Path, South Carolina, heavily armed and trigger-happy deputies fought back, killing seven strikers. In neighboring Georgia, Governor Eugene Talmadge declared martial law. The workers believed they had a powerful ally in the NIRA and the present. One worker sang about Roosevelt, 
the first man in the White House to understand that my boss is a son of a bitch. It was to their great disappointment then that the President Roosevelt's administration reacted hesitantly. The President asked the workers to return to work and said he would appoint a mediation board to hear their grievances. But the board did little more than request further stays of the issues. By September 22nd, their work sites were hemmed in by soldiers and police. Many were forced to sign no strike pledges. The defeat of the strike and the feeling of abandonment by the federal government inhibited labor organizing in the South for decades. The over 700 NIRA rules governing all aspects of their businesses was unwielding, so owners were challenging the codes in court more and more. In May 1935, the question of their constitutionality before the U.S. Supreme Court in Schechter Poultry Corporation versus United States. The case involved the ALA Schechter Poultry Corporation, a Brooklyn chicken slaughtering house and retailing concern ran by several brothers. The Schechters appealed to a lower court verdict that found them guilty of violating the wage and hour restrictions of the NIRA code governing their employees, as well as rules about how wholesale customers selected the birds they wished to purchase. Among the charges was a concern about the condition of the birds sold, giving the case a nickname of Sick Chicken Case. Their defense was that even though the birds came from another state, they bought them from a middleman in New York, so they were engaged solely in intrastate, not interstate, commerce, thus not subject to federal regulations. The court ruled unanimously that the NIRA was unconstitutional. This was a severe blow to the New Deal, for it implied that the administration lacked the right to address the ailing economy through acts of Congress. Senator Wagner, an alien-born citizen, could not aspire to advance in politics beyond the U.S. Senate. Wagner was the driving force in Congress on the New Deal, guiding Social Security Act, the Workers' Progress Administration, and the Civilian Conservation Corps. The New Deal had others pushing on Capitol Hill, but Wagner remained the champion of the underprivileged dedicated to one task, that is to raise the living standard of the lower income groups in our society. Wagner had been irritated by the devices employers came up with to evade the meaning of Section 7A and by the sector ruling, but as it had long been expected that the NIRA would be assaulted in court, Wagner and his aides had already developed legislation to clarify and buttress New Deal's pro-labor provisions. In 1934, he introduced a new bill to clarify the government's power of enforcement chiefly by requiring employers to bargain with the labor representatives chosen by workers and to streamline the methods the federal government used in safeguarding those choices. He said, Businessmen are allowed to pull their information and experience in vast trade associations in order to make concerted drive against the 
evil features of modern industrialism. If employees are denied similar privileges, they not only are unable to uphold their end of the labor bargain, but in addition, they cannot cope with any issues that transcend the boundaries of a single business and under modern industrial conditions. Problems of wages and hours are regional or even national in scope. This bill became known as the National Labor Relations Act or simply the Wagner Act. It sought to put teeth in the New Deal's guarantees to labor. It forbade employers' interference with union organizing, banned employer-supported company unions, prohibited any firing of men for union membership, and insisted that employers enter into collective bargaining with the representatives of the union, backed by a majority of a company's workers as demonstrated by their votes. The bill also endowed an administrative government board, soon to be known as the National Labor Relations Board, that would determine union legitimacy through an on-site elections, thus enabling employers to know they were dealing with a union supported by a majority of workers. At the same time, the provision meant employers would not be able to delay bargaining by claiming instead of denying that a particular labor organization did not truly represent employees. Both President Roosevelt and Labor Secretary Perkins had reservations about the legislation. She had felt sure labor would object to it for the recognition of a union under the act would depend upon the counting of noses. A labor union would have to prove it had the backing of a majority of workers in a plant. This was certainly new doctrine in 1935. It had not been AFL policy in the past to count noses before a committee went to see the boss to demand better wages, hours, working conditions. No labor union had ever asked a government board to tell it whether they could represent employees. That was the union leader's judgment. Closed shops had been gained by bold methods at times. This bill would make that impossible. The debate over the bill in Congress was involved for like seminal disputes about labor status dating back to Commonwealth versus Hunt. It asked the fundamental question of who a worker was to be in America's industrial society. A cog, a partner, an investor, and how much power he should be given. Businesses, though, through its traditional defenders in Congress saw the right embedded in Wagner as representing an unpalatable intrusion into the nation's capitalist system, granting far too much say to those who were neither businessmen nor stockholders. The Senate Labor Committee reported favorably on the bill on May 2nd, and on May 15th, Wagner delivered a powerful address in the Senate reassuring his colleagues that the pending bill is designed merely to apply to industry generally. The benefits of our rich American experience, Wagner continued to campaign for votes, and the next day, with the measure appearing to be riding on greased skids, the bill passed by a count of 62 to 12. The bill passed the House, the President signing into law on July 5, 1935. The New Deal success had 
the effect of enshrining the concepts of labor organization and workers' rights as integral to the maintenance of democracy. This also changed labor's attitude towards the major political parties and they became involved, for now they had reason to do so. In the election year of 1936, labor was determined to safeguard advances already delivered and those yet to be delivered. The Democratic Party wanted to win re-election convincingly in order to validate the New Deal, as many of the President's policies remained under fire from conservative forces. Roosevelt's opponent was a Republican, Alf Landon, governor of Kansas. The incumbent became more confident of victory but feared winning by so narrow a margin that his program of reforms would be handicapped by the lack of an overriding mandate. He reminded the people that the Democratic Party had given the Army of America's industrial workers something more substantial than the Republicans' dinner pill bowl of promises. Roosevelt was re-elected with the help of a major turnout from organized labor and began 1937 with the mandate he'd sought from the American people, as well as Democratic control of both houses of Congress. On February 5, 1937, he set out to conquer the last obstacle to his administration's economic program, the United States Supreme Court. On April 12, 1937, the Wagner Act was found constitutional in a series of rulings, especially the National Labor Relations Board versus Jones and Laughlin Steel Corporation. The court reversed itself on two main points formerly involved to thwart pro-labor legislation. That labor disputes were a private matter because of the liberty of control protection of the due process clause of the 5th and 14th amendments, and the objection that such matters could not be legislated by Congress under the Commerce Clause. The court ruled that workers have a as clear a right to organize and select their representatives for law purposes as the employer has to organize its business and select its own officers and agents. Whatever the court's motivation, the successful validation of the Wagner Act became one of numerous second-term New Deal victories for Roosevelt. An important corollary to the Wagner Act was the administration's effort to tackle the era's staggering unemployment by creating jobs through the Civil Works Administration and the Federal Emergency Relief Administration. Francis Perkins, well, Industrial Commissioner of New York State, had advocated the idea in 1930 to then-Governor Roosevelt, along with the need for unemployment insurance. The state of Wisconsin had in 1932 enacted unemployment and retirement compensation, and the former muckraker Upton Sinclair ran a surprisingly popular campaign for governor of California in 1934, championing a $50 per month old age pension. The Social Security Act was signed into law in August 1935 providing a system of insurance for workers once they attained age 65 and benefits to support surviving children and spouses of workers who died at a younger age. 
the administration also sought to more directly affect the questions of wages and work conditions. The Walsh-Healy Public Contracts Act of 1936 standardized the 40-hour week and minimum wage for employees of government contractors and prohibited the employment of children. The Fair Labor Standard Act passed in May and June 1938, creating a 25 cent per hour minimum wage, a 44 hour work week that would decrease to a 40 hour work week within three years, and a ban on the employment of children under the age of 16. The act was upheld as constitutional in the Supreme Court's unanimous ruling in United States versus Darby Lumber Company in 1941. The United Auto Workers, which had left the AFL for the CIO, sought the recognition from the Big Three in 1936, General Motors, Chrysler, and Ford. GM was the largest, in fact. It was the most profitable company in America and the dominant force in automobiles employing 262,000 of the 400,000 workers in the industry. Its 57 plants across North America made over a million cars and trucks each year. The UAW found GM's response disappointing, an assurance from GM Vice President William S. Knudsen that in lieu of an exclusive collective bargaining agreement with the union, individual GM plant managers would be glad to deal with outstanding employee grievances. The UAW president was Homer S. Martin, an ordained Baptist minister. CIO chief Lewis, suspecting that Martin would not be able to deal effectively with GM, asked for a national conference between GM and the UAW. But GM President Alfred Sloan adhered to the terms of Newton's offer, refusing to recognize the UAW. You have to run to the toilet and run back, a worker in a Buick plant complained, of the most basic human inconvenience. If you had to take a crap, if there wasn't anybody there to relieve you, you had to turn away and tie the line up. And if you tied the line up, you got hell for it. December 30th, 1936, workers at two GM Fisher body plants in Flint learned that management, fearing a UAW work stoppage just before a busy production season, was preparing to ship materials and dyes used by the factory to other GM locations. The employees decided that the Fisher plants should be immediately shut down, but instead of walking out, they remained at their posts. They simply stopped working. Known as a sit-down, it was initially used in 1906 by the IWW, and in February through March 1936 at a Goodyear rubber plant in Akron. The Fisher strike would be the first large-scale use of the sit-down, a tactic to which automobile assembly lines were especially vulnerable. As the line is designed for continuous flow of production, and a few men in any department could stop the whole plant. By remaining on the line, management could not use scabs or send in police as strikers could damage equipment or the premises. They could not even turn the heat off 
as the insurance companies felt the men might start fires to keep warm. By just sitting on the job and not allowing any vandalism to the machinery, the strikers gave management no reason to send in the police. Also, since the employees were invited into the factory, they were not trespassing. GM refused to negotiate until the strikers left the factory. The strikers agreed to leave if GM first recognized the union. The CIO and UAW felt that since collective bargaining was now the law of the land thanks to the Wagner Act, GM, not the strikers, were the ones in defiance of the law. Podcast with your family and friends. Please rate our podcast on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you want to contact us to suggest a topic, have a question, or just want to say hi, our contact information is in the show notes, along with our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. <laughs>